Welcome to Assembly Point, a brand new monthly podcast by the Fire Protection Association. The devastating circumstances of the Grenfell Tower tragedy brought the subject of fire safety into sharp focus. But has anything changed since that day in 2017? What is being done to ensure that everyone involved in the design, construction and management of buildings, as well as those who occupy them, understands their role in minimising the risks? Our host for the series is Howard Passy, the FPA's Director of Operations and respected fire industry professional. From legislative change, updated guidance and improving safety standards to the need for greater education and training, join us as we talk with experts and influencers from across industries to move the debate on fire safety forwards and identify ways to work together to improve standards. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to FPA's Assembly Point podcast. I'm your host, Howard Passy. It's a real pleasure to be joined today by Tom Roach, Senior Consultant, Business Insurer FM Global and Secretary at the Business Sprinkler Alliance. Tom, many thanks for joining us today. It's great to have you here. But uh, before we kick off, could you start by giving us a little background on your career or just for the benefit of our listeners? It's great to be here, Howard. So like most people who are now in the insurance sector. I didn't set off for a career in insurance. Uh, Back in the early 90s, I studied for a couple of degrees in engineering. I thought the future was bright. It was all about automation. Went off to work in automation of steel and water, then looked for a career change and ended up working for an organization called FM Global, where I've worked for 28 years. I've worked with some incredible people who've helped me grow as an engineer, worked in various management roles, within the business, work with some incredible clients who are doing all sorts of things from aluminium smelters to diamond mines, from pharmaceutical businesses to bakeries. About 10 years ago, I became involved with the Business Sprinkler Alliance, which is uh, a group that FM Global is part of, which the focus is really about promoting the use of automatic sprinklers in industrial and commercial properties. And today I'm the secretary of of that organization. And along the way, like a lot of people who've grown in their careers in engineering, I found myself joining into other organizations like the Fire Sector Federation and other things to, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but give something back, but also share some of my knowledge, meet like-minded people, argue with some others, and, and try and promote doing better things. I think it's the same for a lot of people that I run across and certainly people we've been interviewing for this podcast that um, it's about making a difference and, and giving something back where you can. Yeah, and, and that today, part of my role within FM Global today, I work within the International Codes Group, which last part of my work is understanding how codes work, what they mean for some of our clients, and also working with some of those code-making uh, authorities to try and put our input into them try and influence change through different organisations that I join into across Europe. Excellent. There's some real challenges there, I think. Um, diamond mining springs to uh, <laughs> springs to mind well, in that, particular. I think that's one of the things about having a diverse career. It sort of opens your eyes to how people perceive risk, how people view risk differently, mm-hmm. how some things are hugely similar and how some things are completely different. Mm-hmm. And yet there's a sort of common thread that sort of links that all together, which is, you know, as people try and go about their jobs, you know, sometimes risk and making their businesses resilient is something they're trying to achieve. But it's not their primary focus. It's it's one of many things they're trying to do. And my job has often been to sort of help them see what I see through my eyes 
have that discussion so an informed decision could be made mm. and bring some experiences you know you've seen different things done in different ways in different industries which um, you know which really helps it, exactly um, and a part of that is managing change through time you know just i think we've discussed this before it's really okay sometimes uh seeing something on a regular basis you notice change more than perhaps people do who, who are there every day mm-hmm. so that creeping change that changes the risk changes people's view of risk is something that you know you become aware of mm-hmm. well speaking of change that sort of brings us on to the, the the first proper question should i if i could pose it as such um in well last year we saw the government introduce uh, a mandatory provision of sprinklers in all high-rise buildings over 11 meters um we know that that was a reduction from the the previous 30 meter requirement but uh, in your view how suitable is this requirement and should provision also be based on risk and vulnerability not just height is that an arbitrary requirement i think um so first off if i look at uh, the move that government made for residential buildings above 11 metres. I think it was a very good move. I think it will have a positive impact over the long term. I, like many through people like the BSA and the Fire Sector Federation, looked at it and said 11 metres made a lot of sense. So I was pleasantly surprised government went there. Like most of my colleagues in the, the BSA and the Fire Sector Federation, I found myself sort of thinking, well, what about some of the other buildings that look similar to those buildings? How are we addressing those? What are we thinking about? And that extends to things like student accommodation, care homes, and those sort of things. So through the BSA and FSF, we've been sort of looking at those and thinking, well, what about those buildings? And that leads you into this discussion about, you know, what is the risk that we're thinking about? How do we measure that risk? What evidence needs to be provided to sort of, you know, support some of those changes? So I think it's a good step, but I think it's part of a journey that we need to sort of continue down to see the wider provision of sprinklers in a, a range of buildings or as an option in a range of buildings. I, I agree with you, you know, re- reducing the figure from 30 to 11, great step in the right direction, but not sure it addresses the, the primary issue. There's been a lot of discussion around things like height because it's one of those easy things to measure in a building. Mm. Uh, and there are all sorts of stories about how we got to certain heights and they're arbitrary and they're this and that. And and there are parts of regulations around the world which are just fixed based on physical attributes. We can only reach so high. We can only run so far. We can only sort of throw water a certain distance. And they set certain limits on the building. They're not to do with risk. They're more to do with, at that point, we have to transition to doing something else. And that in and of itself poses some challenges. Then when we talk about, well, what are the risks faced by people? Um and, you know, around property itself, well, we have to think about that in terms of well, what's in the building, how is it used? And height becomes a component of that because certain things change as you go higher. Mm-hmm. But it, height is not the only determinant uh, within that sort of discussion. Moving on, just to look at, like to look at a couple of different building types and just okay. just start by looking at schools, really. You'll probably have seen the, the revised building bulletin 100 that's gone out for consultation uh, and sprinklers have still not been made uh, mandatory for all new or re- major refurbished school buildings in England. And schools that can demonstrate that the use of sprinklers would not be good value for money simply won't have a duty to install them. What's your view on the potential impact there of that proposal? Are you planning to um, have your say in terms of responding to the consultation? I, I, like many people, will be responding to this consultation primarily through the Business Sprinkler Alliance. Mm-hmm. Back in 2007, when Building Bulletin 100 
was changed, it set the right direction for me in terms of sprinkler expectation, that the majority of schools would be provided with sprinklers. And it also set the right expectation for me in terms of the function of a school is for education. Yes, we want to keep everybody safe within the building, but the primary job is to sort of ensure that we, we have that continuity of education. And that was the biggest challenge we were facing. I look at the current consultation, I look at something that's rowing in completely the other direction. It's talking about bigger compartments, less sprinklers. And I'm sort of looking at it going, okay, if that's the direction government wants, but I can find no evidence from government that supports why this is a good idea. And like a lot of people, I'm stumped by that because all the messages from government continue to be about the need for continuity in education. And that seems to have disappeared. So I think that's something we need to sort of really get back to. And that's where I think things like sprinklers fit. So if we're talking about, if we do the comparison between you know, buildings with and without sprinklers, I think the difference that we see with the sprinklers is they contain the fire. With some of the schools that we've seen recently, you know, sadly, we saw another school fire in Ormskirk in the past month. It didn't destroy the whole school, but destroyed three of the classrooms in this building. Yeah. Effectively rendered, you know, the school, you know, it couldn't function. You know, you can't replace those three classrooms quickly. My belief is if there were sprinklers in that building, we'd be talking about cleaning up one of the classrooms. The kids would have been back within a few days. As it is, they've all been displaced to a local university to do the sort of the end of their sort of their term. And they'll probably be coming back to some temporary buildings that will probably be on the site of the school for a period of time while those three classrooms are rebuilt. And I just look at that and think, that's going to have an impact on the education of those children. And that's exactly what I thought government said their intent was, <laughs> was to prevent that from happening. So you bet I will be responding to the <laughs> consultation. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I think from some of the work we've done, it, it, it seems that they've taken their evidence from a very very shallow and a very narrow pool of, uh, of of information they may have been able to get hold of and they haven't really consulted more widely in terms of the potential impact of, of sprinklers. And, and I think they're also missing a trick by not considering not just that day-to-day education requirement, um, but the, you know, the potential for loss of community facility, the potential for loss of um, coursework, particularly for, you know, for students preparing for exams. And, you know, you'd have to argue the last 18 months or so have been you know, somewhat traumatic for teachers and for school children. And uh, it doesn't seem like we're preparing for... And I fully a- I fully expect that to be part of the discussion. I, I think it's one of those things where there's, there's a bit too much of a narrow focus here on a, an outcome and perhaps not seeing the wider picture and where everybody wants to sort of look at this. I think, you know, I think everybody sort of sees the impact that a school, the loss of function of a school has. When I was 15, 16, half my school burned down. And I remember that very vividly because all of a sudden you're displaced all over the place to sort of go to different lessons. I was fortunate. I was one of those kids who didn't really have a problem at school, but it still leaves a mark on you to sort of say, yes, uh, the school got some new kit, you know, but that probably benefited a lot of people who came after me. It, it It didn't benefit me. And I think that's something that we've got to look at. And when our own government is turning around to us and saying, well, you shouldn't take your kids out of school. You know, I've brought my two children up. I remember all the sort of messages going to all those parents evening. Don't take your kids out of school for holidays because you miss, you miss five days of school. It's going to have an impact on attainment. And I'm like looking at it going, you're the same people telling me that if a school 
is damaged in some way and you know 300 kids lose five days it's not going to have an impact you know what what are we talking about here are we are we talking out of both sides of our face or are we sort of talking with the different objectives in mind but if we look I suppose slightly differently at a, at a, at a different kind of risk. Um, Third-party research has shown a, a recent rise in warehouse fires. And while we've seen increased demand for warehouse space that's being fueled by the growing e-commerce sector, um, that, that obviously causes, uh, causes some concern. But government rules recommend sprinklers in warehouses larger than 20,000 square metres, meaning that many smaller premises, um, and I think we could argue that you know the stuff we buy nowadays does get smaller generally, they don't have that protection at all. Do you think that there's something that needs to happen to ensure that new warehouses are more resilient to fire risks and do sprinklers have a part to play? I obviously believe that. I, my career, I've seen a number of large fires in warehousing facilities. I've also seen a number of fires where sprinklers have done a fantastic job of containing a fire. <laughs> and the difference is completely stark, you know, one is completely gone and the other is is saved uh, and a business continues and from you know just you know from an fm global perspective it's it's really a case of looking at this from a resilience point of view um there's a lot of businesses that are going into this this world of e-commerce and warehousing is becoming critical but actually it's about delivering on a promise you know a lot of us are expecting our goods we order it today it's delivered tomorrow we're we're not particularly good if it's they say it's going to be delivered in five days time or it's going to be delivered in 10 days time and to achieve that businesses really do have to look at their resilience to doing this from a regulatory perspective i look in a different direction and look at twenty thousand square meters as a a building size and i go wow and i i say twenty thousand square meters because for most people i'm i'm somebody who's used to going into buildings and having a a sense of scale but twenty thousand square meters what does that mean well i the only way I can think about it is if, if you go, if you think about your journey to your average DIY store, if you think back to a time when we used to do that a lot, <laughs> and you stood in you stood in that DIY store and had a look around, you're probably looking at a building that's 2,000 square meters. We're talking about buildings that are 10 times this size before we get to a point before we're saying, well, actually, that needs some sort of active fire protection. Yet if you look at the news and look at incidents where we've had warehouse fire, fire service you know, there was a fire recently in London, uh, it was a food distributor, 2,000 square metres, 100 firefighters surround it. They, they can't save that building. It's just too big. They're not going to have any hope with a 10,000, let alone a 20,000 square metre building, if it doesn't have some form of active fire protection. And so from two dimensions, I look at it and say, well, I'm not quite sure where, which direction we're going at from a regulatory point of view with these massive buildings that we can't in, intervene into. But from a business point of view, I'm looking at it going, well, actually, you know, it, it's starting to make business sense to start thinking about, well, how do I protect this? Can I really afford to lose a warehouse of this scale and replace it? It, you know, doesn't sort of make a lot of sense from that perspective. Um, so that other dimension is probably something else to think about is, 20-something-odd years ago, when I started my journey in insurance, we were talking about the future of warehousing. And the future of warehousing were these dark buildings that you pushed goods in from one side and orders and stuff came out the other side and it was dark in between. That's not the reality. (laughs) There are loads of people in these warehouses working at different heights. 
to you know package goods, collate goods. Warehouse of today, you know, twenty something odd years ago, we were talking about a few few guys with sort of like forklift trucks being able to load and. I'm, we're now looking at sort of warehouses that have levels of automation and machinery in them that some people probably could make the argument that they look more like a big machine than they do actually a warehouse. And they're not quite the buildings that you know we once imagined. And replacing them is not a simple thing. It's not a case of buy another big shed and move straight into. So I've covered a lot of ground there, but it's really a case of I look at that and say it just adds up to this case that says, as a business, if you were looking at this, what is your plan if something goes wrong? Because statistically, warehouse fires happen when they, they do happen. If you don't have some form of active fire protection, it's likely to be a big fire. And so you're going to have to replace all that with something else. Resilience is a choice in this. You have to look at that. And regulatory guidance is just just in the wrong direction for me on this. Compared to if we look across Europe, where we're looking at the sort of typical sort of Regulatory guidance is sort of pointing towards, you know, four to 5,000 square metres as the sort of maximum size of an unsprinkled warehouse. I'd like to come on in a few moments, actually, thinking about what can we do to get people thinking more about resilience. But one of the arguments we see is, is, is the cost of the ongoing maintenance of the, of the system. Um, do you think there's a broader need to understand that value proposition? I absolutely believe in that. I think most of my career working with clients has been around that discussion between you know that risk what are the consequences of that putting that into some sort of business context so you can have a proper discussion about well what are what are some of the downsides and what are some of the costs so you can put them into perspective that still may lead to a decision that says actually no the business does not want to do that but at least it understands you know what are the consequences of an incident like that and for me having that discussion is is the only way to do it because Sometimes the discussion starts with cost and everybody says no to the cost and there's no context to that cost. And that's why you need to sort of take a step back and say, well, what does this mean for the business? If if a fire occurs, what would this mean? And when I said earlier on about helping people see with my eyes, I live in that rare world of sort of I'm used to seeing some of these fire events and seeing some of the consequences of that fire event. So I'm trying to paint a picture for my clients as to what does that really look like? Mm. And the two things I've really learned from that is clients always imagine fires and fire incidents to be much smaller than they normally turn out to be. And they have this other ability to sort of really think that they they will recover really quickly from those events because it's a really small event, whereas actually, potentially it could be a lot larger and it's going to take longer to recover from. And once you can start having that conversation about what that real risk is and what the benefits of putting some sort of active fire protection then you're into a discussion about well what can be done what does that cost look like and i think that's a different discussion than just the headline cost Hmm. and similarly when we talk about things like maintenance it always irks me because i look around a building and think there's lots of things that need maintenance whether it's fire doors fire alarms smoke detectors they all need maintenance you don't fit and forget anything you know Hmm. and if we've learned anything over the last few years is even some of the passives, you know, fire protection needs an inspection every now and again to make sure it's still there. And that's an ongoing cost to sort of make sure the building is going to sort of perform or the systems are going to perform in the way they're intended to. So I think that the maintenance argument is a bit of a fallacy. The real part of this is a discussion about what does it what does it really mean if this happens? What if happens if the, you, this risk is realised? 
What does it mean for the business? And then discuss, well, what can be done about it? The other thing I've learned is, you know, just because somebody's done a cost-benefit analysis and they've come to a conclusion that they don't want to do something, the risk didn't go away. No. <laughs> just because you've concluded you don't want to spend the money, the risk didn't disappear with it. So I, I think there's some sort of discussion there. I've been quite encouraged, I think, by some of the work that's gone on post-Grimfell and uh, discussions around, I suppose, trying to encourage everybody involved in the, you know, from the client side, design, construction, management of buildings to better understand their roles. And, and one of the, you know, one of the examples that um, Jim Glockling, our technical director, gives is uh, is around that role of the client, that the, you know, the client may be presented with a, you know, a solution for their their particular new build or for their refurbishment, um, which is is focused solely on that life safety element and meeting the requirements of the, the building regulations. And, and that's absolutely fine. But commonly, it seems to me that they're not necessarily given that option to think differently about what they actually want from their building. They didn't get that opportunity to say, Okay, well, actually, my requirements are slightly different to that. I don't, I don't just want to keep people safe. Of course, that's my primary objective. Um, but in the longer term, I want to ensure that my building's resilient. And I think that's a huge thing that we're seeing. It's one of the things that, from from a business sprinkler alliance point of view, that we've been picking up is some of the recent large fire incidents, and they haven't been industrial or commercial. They may be residential, where numbers of people have been displaced by what effectively started out as a small fire in one part of the building and grew into another part of the building. Um, thankfully, nobody's been injured in those sort of events. But you listen to somebody afterwards say, well, the building complied with the regulatory requirements. Mm. And you stand there and you sort of say, well, most of the people standing outside the building who've lost somewhere to live are now looking at that and they're not calling that a success. Mm. They're sort of thinking, no, our expectation of the outcome was the fire stayed in one area and actually there would be some cleanup and then we'd go back in. And I think that's the same discussion when I was talking earlier about my role within FM Global, talking to clients and getting them to see what I see with my eyes is, is to have that discussion about some of these outcomes. This is what it would look like. Is that what you want? Is that what you intended it to look like? Um, it's like showing uh, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate that we have a large research arm that do full-scale fire testing. So you can show some clients what a, what it would look like in their facility, you know, with some of these, you know, from a sprinkler point of view with high rack storage. And the thing that always surprised me is people, people look at some of those fire events and they're, they're stunned that it could look just like that. And that, that's, that's reality versus what they imagine that fire could look like. But it's good to have that discussion so that people are prepared. This is what they need to sort of think, be thinking about. And also the outcome in terms of it's controlled and contained if they, put that level of protection in. And I think that's a different sort of discussion. And there's another statistic in there, which we came from the business sprinkler Alliance, when we interviewed a number of small and medium enterprises. One of the surprising findings was we found that nearly seven out of 10, you know, small business um, owners believed if they followed the regulations, their property would be protected against fire. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at them and thinking, no, that's not the intent of regulations, but that's, what they believe or they they understand to happen so it's no surprise when people are talking to us and saying you know we, if we follow the regulations we'll be okay and they're missing that gap you know it's rather what you're saying is jim is pointing out if you if the people were looking at the you know the gap between the outcomes delivered between regulation and you know what they want to happen in terms mm. of their business following a fire they might be surprised that that gap could be quite large yeah 
Yeah, no, absolutely it could be. Um, and I think we were talking in one of the earlier podcasts about some of the issues around how that whole client designer relationship works and then down to uh, you know then down to construction but um, it almost seems to me that there's there's a missing piece of the jigsaw there also within the design community because they need to understand how to advise their client um, as well as how to advise those that are supporting them to get the you know the fire safety factors right I suppose. My chairman at the Business Sprinkler Alliance Ian Cox always says the same thing is there's a disconnect in the process of developing buildings because not every building has the ultimate occupier in mind as they're constructed. No, true. And therefore, that idea of what's the outcome you want from your building at the end, there, there can be a disconnect because the ultimate occupier <laughs> might not be the person who specified it when it was designed. And But that's a process that somebody needs to go through to sort of understand, well, what am I taking on? Understanding their building, does it meet their requirements? Do they need to add anything to the mm. building rather than just accept what they're given, if I, if I put it that way? And uh, as Ian would often say, well, that disconnect is often quite large in terms of that assumption between this is going to meet the regulations, this therefore it's going to be okay, versus does it meet the outcome I want in the event mm. of something bad happening? Well, I think you, you, you touch on a, a really interesting point there. You know, when you talk about understanding your building, um, you know, yep. we, we've been reflecting on on sprinklers quite significantly, although we've we've touched on other facets of fire safety as we've gone through, but um, clearly. Sprinkler provision is is only one facet of of what you could bring to you know to help protect a building, whether that's from a life safety perspective, or from a you know property protection or business resilience perspective. But one of the things that we found, and and, and certainly has driven the the sort of know your building campaign that we're running at the moment, has been the businesses don't always understand what they've got, and that may be because they they never have understood it or they aren't the ultimate occupier of the building as it was designed. And a lot of the work we're doing at the moment is around developing fire strategies for, for organisations, not necessarily for those who are going into the new build or refurbishment, but for people who have existing buildings and they just don't understand how they function or what the fire safety features are for. How important do you think it is that businesses know their building um, as well as having an understanding of how risk can change as the, the use or the, the occupancy changes? Is it essential? Is it something that is a nice to have? No, it's essential. I, I look at it and think it's it's been my whole career uh, is visiting clients. And my role has probably been you know, to understand their properties and share that with them so that there's a, an, a common understanding of how we, we mutually see the risk and, and, the, and the hazards in the building. And it was no surprise when you know people started talking about the golden thread and mm. you know, material information about a building is missing. Well, my whole career has been based around a lot of that in terms of trying to help people understand, well, what is their building constructed of? Some of the processes, where do they go to and from? Yes, people understand that at one level, but you know, digging down to from a hazard point of view, maybe where do some of the pipelines for some of the flammable liquids flow between? Yeah. How does it shut off? All these sort of things. Some of that information is held in, you know, one or two people's hands but it's very rarely surfaced to a point where people who perhaps may need to know some of that information when they're sort of considering scenarios you know really understand it hmm. um, and so from my point of view knowing your building understanding some of the the hazards and some of the risks within that building is vitally important if you're going to come up with you know strategies to sort of make your your building stronger or more resilient to fire well you have to do it from a position of knowledge. Yeah, no, it's 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 true. Um, you know, 
seen on so many occasions, as I'm sure you have, that you know that that Regulation 38 information is a box of files and folders and plans that make no sense to anybody apart from maybe the you know the the design and construction teams but really don't help the you know the end user understand what what's required of them really one of the things that um i see as a, a positive in terms of a discussion that's ongoing it's, it's thinking about buildings as systems you know the idea for certain plant types of buildings will need safety cases and to you know produce a safety case you're going to need to understand your building well, I look at that and think, well, there's a lot of other buildings out there that need exactly the same treatment. And there's also this other process that's been talked about that Hackett mentioned, which I don't think she, you know, people have sort of appreciated as much as we've got to manage change. Hmm. If we make changes in a property and, you know, I'm, I'm like everybody else. There are plenty of buildings that I have visited in my career and I look at it and think well, this once died out as, you know, you know, from the extremes, it was a, a bomber factory. <laughs> Yeah. In, the, in the war and yeah. now it's it's a large warehousing facility or it's a mm. large production facility it, you know properties have changed changed their use over time what's stored in them what's you know used in them and people need to manage that change and we help to manage that change so that as they're making decisions about risk it's they're using the up-to-date information it's no longer a, a, an assumption that something's in place or something will 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 be there mm. um, and i think we're we're going to have to go through that process as we're sort of starting to make more decisions about risk in buildings when we talk about fire safety we're going to need that information to do it successfully mm. yeah i'd also think that yes it does help end users to ultimately understand risk and resilience for for their properties but we've also found in certainly in, in the experience of working with certain clients as we are at the moment that it does help it does enable them also to refocus as to exactly what their um, their objectives are exactly what strategy do they want you know working with multi-occupied buildings that have um, retail on the ground floor storage on the first floor trading floors on the second residential above um, yeah. and for them to say well you know is it possible we could have a strategy which enabled in the event of a fire in one of those occupancies that we didn't need to evacuate the the rest of the building we can have that conversation with them we can work through the options and you know help them really come up with something that's going to work for them yeah and i and i think that that piece of knowledge and that comes back to this you know what is the outcome you desire but when once you do that you've got to start thinking about that with some you, you've got to build on solid foundations you can't you can't assume this level of information you've got to have that that solid foundation because that sets a lot of the context around well what could happen what is it going to mean hmm. you know what's in place to sort of prevent some of these things happening how will it work how will it operate and i think all those things are vitally important if you're going to sort of start thinking about risks and sort of hazards and how they sort of interplay you've, you've got to understand these issues I think people place a lot of importance on having um, a good fire evacuation policy and procedure. So understanding what to do in the event that somebody discovers a fire, um, even if it's really simple, you know, raise the alarm, call the fire brigade, evacuate the building. Um, but I've had several occasions where that second step of calling the fire brigade just never happens because even though there's well-documented procedures, um, you know, it doesn't, it just doesn't work for them at the time or something goes wrong within that process. And you think for yeah. something as simple and straightforward as that has the potential to have a significant impact. You'd also think that understanding your building and how all of those systems are meant to function together um, is going to be essential really in ensuring the safety. 
and and I also see it as part of good business. Mm. You know, just just from you know maintaining up to date records of how things work, it's good business. Mm. You know, you know, if you're going to make changes, you're going to you know going back and relearning all this is is not actually it's good, but actually you'd like to be moving forward. So having this information, keeping those records, it's a habit. Unfortunately, I think we've got out of in mm. different you know ways because we we rely on others personally when i look at some of my clients i think you know they do a great job of sort of like collecting records and sort of maintaining some of those records up to date but it takes effort it's not something you set out to accidentally do it's mm. something you do with a purpose yeah and you set out to have somebody look after this information you know to keep it up to date because i think as i said it's good business well we started off talking um about sprinklers and dominated the conversation to a certain degree but i'd just like to finish i think on on that sprinklers issue again um and this is a bit of crystal ball gazing really but um i don't quite know how good your uh, um your skills in that respect are but if you had the opportunity to you know to influence the way you would like to what do you think we would need to change within that regulatory space for sprinkler provision to become made mandatory in all high-risk buildings where occupants are vulnerable if I if I take a step back, I think what it's going to take is for us to sort of take a, a a very hard look at what what do we want the outcomes from certain buildings to be in the future, and it's going to be a mix of different things. It's not just going to be about protecting property. It's not just going to be about people. It's also going to be about sustainability, mm-hmm. um, and looking holistically at a number of these things to say. In the regulatory space, what do we want the outcome to be for certain types of buildings in the future? Um, and regulating on that basis and, and, and expanding on that slightly. It's, it's more a case of if we talk about sustainability, you, you, like me, will probably have seen many people talk about this. And a lot of it gets you know consumed by energy conservation. But I see a future in which a lot of this is going to be out. You know, we have to conserve you know, material. We have to sort of, you know. We build a building, we are intending to use it for many, many years. We're going to have to look after it. And that includes, you know, stopping it, you know, falling needlessly to waste because yeah. of a small incident like a fire. Well, you've got to do something different if you've got that sort of thinking, particularly if the future view is more bio-based construction materials. Um, similarly, if we want people to sort of enjoy a building flexibly over its life, we're going to have to put in systems that allow that to happen so that if we want to change the use of the building, we don't have to gut it and reuse lots of resources to make it again. And therefore, from a you know property point of view, when you're sort of starting to think about it, that means thinking about property as not just an asset, but something that is a system that sort of um, offers real sustainability, offers real flexibility. And to gain the benefits of all that, we're going to have to protect it. Mm. So I think it's those sort of things that we need to change in the regulatory environment over the long haul that's going to see the increase in the use of active forms of fire protection in the regulatory space. And I think, you know, whether that's incentives that are brought forward to sort of make sure people conserve materials or whether that's uh, regulation that sort of says, well, actually, we don't intend for lots of people to be displaced in the event of a small fire. Therefore, mm. contain it to as small as area as possible. And a way to do that is forms of fire protection. Or it's to say that from a property point of view, we didn't never intended to have fires that were just so big that 
our fire and rescue service can't do anything about them. We need to help them out because we don't want to put them at risk. I think it's a confluence of those sort of things that I see on the horizon that will make that change. Mm. Sadly, I think mixed in there will be what we've always seen as the, the, the motivators for regulatory change, which is catastrophe. And mm. when something bad happens, yeah. we react. But I'm one of those people who looks ahead and thinks if, if, if we are really intent on sort of all these things, we have to think holistically about what our built environment is there to do and what's it there to achieve. And some of that leads me to think a view of the world that just says buildings are disposable as long as you're able to escape them in mm. the event of a fire is just not going to be the right thinking anymore. Uh, yeah, I think I, I, I agree with you that there, there are a number of drivers. It would be interesting to see how the government responds. You'd, you'd like to think that, um, you know, given the experience of, of Lackanall House and, and, and Grenfell, that um, the government might think differently going forward. It might not simply be about that sort of uh, cheapest option, simplest option, least least economic impact option. But, you know, considering things in the round, you know, there's still still concerns over the use of what are deemed to be more environmentally friendly materials, which which may not necessarily be the case that we're installing into into our buildings, you know, massive timber frame structures, you know, um, expanded expanded plastics, forming insulation, those those sorts of things. I think it's one of those things as as people seek to do this and take on and do things in different ways, we have to stop thinking of them as um zero consequence they're just the same as the one that went before yeah. we have to really start appreciating what does this mean i'm really encouraged by some of the stuff i've seen in terms of research that's going into some of these timber structures the, the only thing that i question is you know why are we doing it now and not 10 years ago perhaps yeah. but yeah. that's that's part of part of what we've got to look at is what does that really mean and also what does that mean in terms of outcomes because there's one thing to say well the building will stand and survive a particular type of fire but as we both know, probably from working you know, closely with the insurance world, yes, there's still the repair that needs to be done to that building mm. and what does that repair look like? And that's why I'm sort of, I, I key it into the sustainability. It's, it, you know, if, if we have a small fire in a building and then we have to rip it apart to sort of fix it, I, I have to question, well, how sustainable was that? You know, and and it's all those sort of things that I think come together that change your thinking. And similarly, as we move forward with some of the changes that have sadly come about because of Grimfall. There's certain things like thinking about safety cases where if you're like me, you've watched some of the things that have happened around the inquiry where people are considering their little piece of the pie and what is the best decision for my part, hmm. where now we're expanding it out and saying, well, actually, you've got to think about this in terms of, well, what does that mean for the rest of our strategy for this building? That takes on a new dimension in terms of, well, how do I... How do I deal with that? If if suddenly I say, well, I can't quite get what you need in this area, which leaves a residual risk in the rest of the building, well, how are we going to deal with that? Mm, yeah. Who is going to deal with that? Where does that rest? And I think some of that thinking leads you to really starting to consider, well, do we need other forms of protection? Do we need other systems in place? And and that that's why I think it's an interplay of a number of different assets that we've got to start thinking about and it's all tied back to what we've been discussing throughout this is, well, what's the outcome you really want to see from Absolutely. this building in the event of something bad happening? And I know that sounds really simple to some people, but actually you sit down with a lot of property owners and ask them, well, have you really thought about this? 
you know, sit down with a few architects and ask them, well, in the event of a fire, what do you expect the outcome to be? I'm not, I'm not poking anything at architects, but just that conversation. Is it really happening? Is it, is it something, you know, that needs to happen more? And I think if we drive it in that direction, then, you know, I can see good, good things happening, but I think it does need to be matched by regulation at the same time, because when you set the bar at a very low point, Unfortunately, that's what you get. Yeah, absolutely. And people still still try to creep under it. I, I'm I'm hoping that will change, but you're, I think there is a certain very sort of, cynical. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> it may be very cynical, but I think we've seen that that is uh, it's true. So, but I, you know, I think that you know, whenever we talk about you know sprinklers and other things being mandatory, I I still take it back to people need to make you know decisions. And I, that's what I see that I help my clients do, mm. make decisions about risk and inform decisions about risk. And sometimes people make, you know, informed decisions not to do certain things because they have other mitigating factors. I understand that. Mm. But it's really understanding what that risk is. And, you know, and studies are starting to show the same thing, which is, you know, that, you know, businesses, particularly in the space of, you know, when catastrophe strike, whether that's a flood, a fire, a hurricane, you know, the the world is now watching and asking, well, how do you respond? Mm. And unfortunately, the business world is not very forgiving of, you know, organisations that haven't thought about risk, have not been well informed about risk, and, and are tragically sort of like, you know, found to be wanting when that happens. So I think there is a real, re- you know, relationship between you know, the value of business and its ability to manage risk, you know, and that resilience as a choice, Mm. You know, really resonates with me when I sort of think about that because the businesses that I've worked with, you know, where they really have invested in understanding risk in all sorts of forms and making informed choices seem to prosper. That's a really good point to stop. Tom, thank you so much for taking time out to, to speak with me today. It's been a great to get your insight into not only sprinklers and high-rise residential and high-risk properties, but uh, uh, a whole breadth of, um, of subjects. So, Again, thank you very much indeed for for taking some time out to to chat. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Tom. We hope you've enjoyed today's conversation. To make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. Thank you for listening to the FPA's Assembly Point podcast, created as part of our Know Your Building campaign. To hear more episodes or for more information and resources on Know Your Building, which is helping building owners and managers reduce the risk of fire, please visit www.thefpa.co.uk and search Know Your Building.